I can't help, uh, I must say, but associate Franciscan University Subinville with Dr. Scott Hahn. And um, his books have been um, very dear to me, many of them. But I will say that in preparation for my book tour for this book, The Unbroken Thread, I read his book, Reasons to Believe, which is his uh, apologetic text. And the reason I did that was because as I was ramping up to do book promo, I received an invitation from a, uh, uh, a show uh, on Amazon Prime um, called something like Man Unbound or something like that. And it was, um, it, it was on Amazon Prime, so I thought, okay, I'll say yes. You know? And if you're promoting a book, whoever will have you on, whether it's like Fox News or you know, a mom and pop Catholic radio station in, in, in some small place, you say yes, whatever. I, I'll do every, everything. And um, so I looked at, but I began to look into this guy and uh, you know, it turned out he's this Calvinist uh, preacher. You know? And uh, I just sort of imagined what if, you know, I'm challenged on specific doctrinal points. You know, why do you guys worship Mary or whatever? And so I had to be, <laughs> it's one thing to, 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 to uh, you know, share a personal conversion story. It's another thing to go up against a, 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 a you know, an ultra Calvinist Protestant minister. So I, I read that book in preparation. As it happened, I ultimately canceled this thing altogether because then I looked it up and uh, I have my evangelical advisors and they were like, this guy is justified slavery on biblical grounds, quote unquote. So, and, and, and they were like, you, you have to come to, uh, you have to fly to Moscow, Idaho, but then you have to like, we have to drive for four hours to our compound somewhere. <laughs> I like, nope. No, thank you. So I, I bowed out of that, but I took a great deal um, and, and I d developed a detailed outline um, f uh, 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 based on reasons to believe, which I use uh, uh, regularly. So um, all things work out uh, for the good in the end. So thank you very much, Dr. Hahn, for all your work. And, and it's just an honor to get to meet you in person. So um, I'll tell you a little about, about, about The Unbroken Thread, uh, about its key thesis. It's a book about limits and about freedom and limits as a source of freedom. Um, the whole book is really summarized in a G.K. Chesterton quote that's uh, one of uh, the two quotes in the epigraph for the book. The book has been widely reviewed, but no one noticed that um, epigraph. I'm a little bit sad about it, so I'll read it to you and you'll see why this is the genius of Chesterton. It's, he says, do, and this is from Orthodoxy, do not free a camel from the burden of his hump you may be freeing him from being a camel. Um, so again, it's, it looks like one of those simple sentences that then uh, you know, an author uh, uh, several decades later, nearly a century later, can um, unpack into a book. I mean, it's, it, the whole book is based on this simple Chestertonian insight that the, the, um, uh, the, what looks like an imposition of nature on the camel this hump that is a burden on him is really integral to his camelness. And so the, the quest to try to liberate the camel from his hump may actually undo the camel altogether. And that's the basic insight of the book. You will also find it in my um, uh, friend Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, in a much more theoretical way. I'll tell you, my, my book is not, a, is not a theoretical book. It's fundamentally a work of journalism and narrative, but it's the same insight 
that human beings find their true freedom and their true selves in response to certain limits that are imposed by, by nature and, and by tradition. Um, and that the quest to overcome those barriers, overcome those limits paradoxically makes us less free, makes us less than fully human. That's the whole thesis of the book. But you might ask, why write a book about limits? After all, we're living in an age of, uh, of limits. We are living in an age of severe new restrictions um, that were supposed to last for 15 uh, days to, to flatten the curves. I don't know if you remember that expression anymore. It was a year and a half ago. Um, but they're still going on. So why a book about limits in such an age? Shouldn't you, Sarab Amari, write a book about transcending limits? Um, well, in order to answer that, I have to tell you about myself a little bit. And here, um, uh, I have to say the introduction, as much as it, it uh, uh, boosted my ego, um, also spoiled the story a little bit. But I'll try to tell it uh, in a different way, perhaps. Um, so as was mentioned, I was born in Iran. And I was born exactly six years to the day that the Ayatollah Khomeini, six years after the, the anniversary uh, of the day that the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to herald the Islamic Republic. And this fact was a running joke in my family, the fact that my birthday was landed on the anniversary of the imam's return. Uh, there was a, an old uh, police colonel, he had been a colonel uh, in the police forces of the Shah, the former regime, who was a member of our family. And obviously he hated the new regime. And so every time we would have a family reunion, he would ask me, what's your birthday, Sorab? And I knew that he knew the answer, and he knew that I knew the answer, but I always played along with the, with, uh, the older man's jokes. I would say February 1st, and he would hold his nose and say, piff, piff, you brought the, you brought the imam with you. Um, and and uh, so that was the kind of family that I grew up in. It was, it was largely secular, but most of my family members had supported the revolution. In the case of my, my grandfather, it was because, I think it was a perfectly legitimate reason, he was an, he was an Iranian nationalist and of the type, uh, common st still today, that thinks about the, the Alexandrian conquest of the Achaemenid dynasty as though it had happened yesterday. It was a fresh uh, grievance, uh, not something from 2,500 years ago. Um, and, uh, but in my, the case of my parents, my parents were uh, basically Iranian bohemians. They were children of 1968 in a way that wouldn't be so alien in Paris or in New York or San Francisco around the same time. It just so happened that they were in Iran and it was a generation that had um, read some French philosophers and figured that it would be good to throw in their lot with a, a stern looking Ayatollah promising something called an Islamic revolution, which they had no idea what that would entail. So they had <clears throat> come to regret their decision, to put it mildly, almost instantly after the revolution. Um, and uh, so growing up, I grew up in a world of what you believed and professed behind closed doors and what you believed and professed uh, in the world outside behind closed doors. I was surrounded by Western books, movies, and ideas. Not all of them highbrow, but you know, G.I. Joe, Transformers, that's how I learned English uh, to, to speak kind of almost with an American accent before I ever landed in the United States was thanks to Reagan-era cartoons. Um, and 
uh, and I and I uh, imbued from that milieu a kind of uh, vision of what the good life really is. And it wasn't in Iran. It wasn't in its traditions. It wasn't in its faith. Um, but it was in the West, a West that stood for secularity, for what I called rationality, whatever that meant to a, to a 12, 13-year-old, and that, it that, was, that was godless. Um, and so, uh, as was mentioned, I, yes, I declared myself an atheist at age 13 and thought I was the first person, as many 13-year-olds do, who had, who had hit upon the idea that there might not be a god. And I love to inject this new discovery into every space and to, to you know, give my, um, my peace to every, every person who'd listen. Uh, luckily, although that would be an, have been a dangerous opinion in the Islamic Republic of Iran, I knew that thanks to something called a green card, we would soon come to my promised land, uh, the United States. And sure enough, one day we, we, we did receive uh, the green card thanks to something called the Family Preference Visa Program, AKA Chain Migration. Um, and so I knew I was coming to America and here we are. It was my mother and I uh, who actually came here with my grandmother um, and it, we yeah, got on an airplane. We uh, you know, flew to Amsterdam, KLM, Royal Dutch Airlines. And I was expecting, as I said, America to be a kind of decadent Manhattan you would see in the movies in the 1980s. Again, individualistic, secular, um, and, and utterly bereft of God, and that's what I sought. Then we took a flight from Amsterdam to the United States, and as you know, there was a flight tracker. Back in the day, it used to be projected on sort of in the front of the economy class, so we were looking, and the plane, the plane just sort of went past New York, or where I thought New York was, and landed in a place called Minneapolis, St. Paul. I was like, hmm, okay. But we didn't stop there. We then took another plane, and it went to a city called Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay? <laughs> but we didn't stop there. Then my uncle picked us up and drove us an hour and a half to, to a town called Eden, Utah. And as you walk in, you know, there's like a, as you drive in, there's a sign that says Eden, Utah, P-O-P-E 608. You know? Um, so this is the America that I, I found myself in, and I'm, I'm almost obviously and immediately, and I won't tell you the whole story because that's the story of my memoir, so I won't tell you the whole, but th um, uh, this was the America I immediately set myself against because I took Mormon Utah to stand in for the whole, let's say, Judeo-Christian ethic insofar as it persisted in the United States in the late 90s. Um, and if I had rejected Shiite Islam with its tradition of commentaries on, on Plato and Aristotle and its rich iconography and its martyrology and all of that, you know, I would sure as not, hell was not gonna believe in this abominably weird religion where they believe that, I, I don't know, the Israelites had tried to convert the Native Americans, or, all that stuff. <laughs> so, um, so if the, for the rest of my life until my conversion, which again is a different story, I don't wanna get into it too much, um, for much of my life, I devoted myself to the idea of self-definition, that um, the goal of society should be to liberate the individual from these bonds of tradition, of obligation that seem to hold us, hold us back. Um, and it outraged me to think that there were still people and societies that were trapped um, under systems in which people could not engage, as I had in the United States, in 
really experiments in self-definition. Ideologically, you know, I moved uh, from, uh, from Marxism to a kind of neoliberal slash neoconservatism in the United States. Um, I, uh, uh, obviously, there's in, in immense mobility as America is extremely good at extracting elites from anywhere and placing them in the metropole. Um, and I was a beneficiary of that. So in that sense, I was in a, a kind of perfect subject of, of, a, of a liberal imperium. Um, when we first moved to Utah, as I said, we, we lived in a, in a mobile home park because we had been upper middle class in Iran, but then suddenly you have to convert the funds you have to dollars. <laughs> it's worth a lot less. Um, and so from there, then, you know, but within a decade, I'm in Manhattan, I'm working uh, for the Wall Street Journal opinion pages. So there's something remarkable about that, and I really embraced it, and I sought to then dismantle intellectually um, all the structures that stood in the way of, 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 of similar self-liberation and self-definition for um, other people. And then things changed. Um, I became a Christian. Well, I guess I will tell you a little about, about my route to um, the Catholic faith. Um, it took a long time. Uh, it began by my, my discovery of my own conscience. Um, so I guess I, I, if I were to give it a name, I took the, the, the moral way to, to faith in, first of all, a personal God. Right? So in the sense that I was, uh, this is when I was a little bit younger, so it's before I became a journalist, I was working as a, as a uh, Teach for America teacher, and I was terrible at it, basically I had just picked it up as a way to do something between having graduated from college and whatever, I was, whatever my next step would be, it would end up being law school and then journalism, but I, um, I, you know, I just sort of went through the motions. But I had a colleague who was extremely diligent about this work. He would wake up at five in the morning, head to the school, lesson plan, uh, engage with the, the kids at a deep, rigorous level. And ironically enough, he, that, this got him in trouble at the school because the ad administrators and the parents just expected the teachers to pass the kids whether or not they had learned. So. Um, they were shocked that he would insist that they actually show that they've learned before handing out um, grades. Whereas I found that you can really thrive at a, an American uh, public school as a school teacher if you just talk a big game in the faculty meetings. You, know, you just sort of say, like, yeah, I believe, uh, Mrs. Principal, we need to adopt more advanced adaptational instructional strategies. And, and the principal would be like, oh, that guy, he's... He's the, he's the star here. Meanwhile, as I said, I was going through the motions. But over time, comparing myself as a professional, but as, just as a man, to this, this friend of mine who, he was also my roommate in Teach for America, I began to sense that I was coming up short. So there was this interior compass or interior gauge that was telling me that I wasn't doing well, which then suggested that there was some objective measure of, of being a good person, whether that means uh, fulfilling your, your responsibility as a, as a teacher or as a, as a young man or what have you. And eventually I had to ask, well, what is the source of this objective moral order? And it took me a long time, but I ultimately concluded that it's the reflection of a, of a, of a supreme being. Um, and so I, I became, a, first of all, just a believer in a personal God, and then eventually, through a couple of providential encounters with the Mass, 
and um, uh, 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 reading Pope Benedict's books, uh, especially the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy, I became intellectually convinced as well. Uh, and I was received into the church in London where I was working for the European edition of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't sin sinned once since then. Uh, <laughs> now I joke. But what I have found, what I have found, in addition to the, sacra the, 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 the graces found in the sacramental life of the church, what I have found is also what, what, what the priests who received me into the church called ordered continuity. Um, that is this sense we get when we come into encounter with the Catholic Church of an institution. First of all, its existence itself is a is a is a um, is a miracle. Um, its persistence through the persistence through the ages for me is one of its own proofs for the Church. Um, but also this sense that I don't have to look within myself all the time in a kind of solipsistic manner to, to ask, you know, who am I? What am I supposed to do? That's very exhausting. You know, my, as I said, I, I love my parents, but they were the kind of bohemians. The only kind of commandments they ever handed down to me was be yourself. And it was, it was tiring for about, you know, two, three decades to always ask, well, what is this self inside me and what, what does he want? Um, and, the, you know, and then you encounter the church and you encounter not just its um, supernatural account of what it means to be human, but even just its natural account of what it means to be um, happy on a natural plane. And that's incredibly liberating. That's incredibly relaxing in a way. It doesn't mean that the person of faith becomes complacent and smug, and as you know, and says, oh, well, all the answers are there for me. Obviously, in, in each occasion, you have to wrestle with these moral questions and you have to exercise your own conscience in relation to, to both the kind of natural and supernatural teachings, but, um, but that wrestling itself uh, is relaxing. It's a strange thing to say, but it's relaxing to know that, um, it, it, that there is this authoritative source, this providing these kind of guardrails, these steps leading behind or, or stretching behind you and leading ahead. Um, that's the promise of tradition, both tradition in its capital T sense of a central source of authority in the, in, in the life of a Catholic, but also in a broader, I would say, small T sense of, of um, the traditions of the peoples, many of which um, accord also with the teaching, with the kind of the natural teachings of the church. Um, and so I found this, and I immediately then found it in a society that, was, that, that, that assailed that sense of security I had just found. It wasn't just in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, the Obama administration is forcing nuns to pay for abortifacients or whatever. That's the most obvious kind of assault on the liberty of the church, but that the, 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 the way of life, including the way of life I had championed as your typical, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial writer, actually made it very hard for people to live in accord with a sense of ordered continuity. Um, and so uh, my project as a writer, as a journalist, changed. Another thing that changed was the fact that I, I became a father. And um, that was um, uh, almost as influential or as, a, as important a fact in, in my wanting to write The Unbroken Thread as my uh, religious conversion. 
I named my son after St. Maximilian Kolbe, the great uh, uh, Franciscan uh, friar. As you know, I won't uh, recount his story. But when I heard that story of someone laying down his life for a complete stranger at, at, at Auschwitz, I had to do something with it. It wasn't something, I had to wrestle with it. It wasn't something that I could say, mm, well, that's nice. Mm, okay. I had to, this, is, this man laid down his life for a stranger. Um, what did that mean to do something with it? Well, I, I, I named my son after him. The reason I did that in part, though, was because as much as I was drawn to St. Maximilian's story, when I was asked to choose um, a baptismal and confirmation name, I went with, with uh, St. Augustine. So then I had to, St. Maximilian had to go somewhere, and luckily our first child was a son. Um, uh, and uh, for me, I mean, I think Bishop Barron, in a conversation with me, described St. Maximilian Kolbe as the freest man in Europe in 1941, which is something extraordinary to think about. Uh, and there was such a profound freedom in this, in this act. And it seemed to me that if left to the devices of our civilization, my son wouldn't be able to make sense of his namesake sacrifice. In other words, that our culture would make St. Maximilian's act illegible or insensible for my son. Because my, our culture says that to be free mean, merely means to have maximal choice, to be able to choose from the widest range of options, and to be as free as possible from coercive um, authorities in making those choices. And usually, though, the choices substantively turn out to be kind of utilitarian, materialistic. So my nightmare for my son is not, I don't think, you know, who knows, uh, uh, God forbid, but I don't think he'll be like, I don't know, just sort of uh, uh, an opioid addict, you know, God forbid. But the nightmare that I lay out in the book's introduction of, of imagining a possible future for my son is that he'll just be a kind of aimless meritocrat, the kind who uh, populate my own milieu. Right? He's gone to an elite school. He's just come back from, uh, he's just graduated. He's about to work at a hedge fund or a publishing house or a law firm or whatever as a, as a junior associate. And all he can talk about with his friends is money and how much the senior associates make and how to, how to make eye contact effectively and what TED talk they listen to about pushing your workout game to the next level with designer hormones or whatever, I don't know. Um, and, and, and then, as, as, again, as I envision him in the, in the book's introduction, as he gets a little older, um, he, he, you know, he, he's dating this girl perhaps, but they've been dating for 10 years. And they're just sort of traveling Europe, no intent to marry, no intent. And, and I know people like that. The reason I imagine it in my book as a possible future for my own son, it's not that I just, I, I'm a sadist or whatever, or have, you know, just want to come up with overly critical accounts of how people in the West live. Um, it, it, it's because that's how people in the West live. I know people like that who just are, oh, I'm just traveling Europe with my girlfriend in a van for decades. You know? Um, uh, uh, and so that's, 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 a, that's a real problem. And I think that it's born out of this idea that to be free means to, quote unquote, keep your options open, which is a truly horrendous slogan. Um, I was at a talk with, uh, with uh, the, the prelate of Opus Dei, and one of the young people asked him, Father, a lot of, a lot of young people in my milieu, they, they may be drawn to the priesthood, but they won't 
finally take the step toward the vocation. They might be drawn to marriage, but they won't finally propose to the girl. What gives? And, and uh, the prelate had a wonderful uh, response to that. He said, they're, they're actually, by keeping their options open, they're not actually free because they're never, as he put it, they're never reducing their freedom from potency to act. It always just sort of floats, floats forever. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the nightmare I have uh, for my son. Um, so I want him to begin to think that to be free doesn't just mean keeping his options open, doesn't just mean maximizing his individual liberty, but to irrevocably binds himself to something greater than himself. How do I do that? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian. What I decided to do instead, oh boy, we're bad on time. I'll need a little bit more time. Um, what I decided instead to do was to um, pose questions, questions that are um, ignored now, or we assume that because we know something about the universe's uh, kind of the cosmos's physical origins and the Big Bang that we no longer need uh, to even ask these questions, whether they're metaphysical ones or, or religious ones, um, or we just think the questions have become boring or irrelevant to our lives, whereas indeed, as I argue throughout the book, these questions are pertinent, highly pertinent to a, to a truly human and happy life. And I explore them, again, not as a, as a philosopher might, but as someone with my vocation as a, as a journalist does, through the life of great thinkers. And I'll give you a little bit ta a taste of one of the questions, and then I'll stop, and hopefully that taste will um, uh, uh, persuade you to maybe look at the book um, uh, and spend more time with it. And the question is, why would, uh, it's one of the early ones, why would God want you um, to take a day off. And it's basically about the, the loss of the American Sabbath. As you may know, the last statewide blue law in the United States uh, died, uh, became kaput in 2019, uh, and that was North Dakota's uh, ban on shopping uh, on, on Sunday mornings. And it was not the leftist devious wokesters who killed the Sabbath in North Dakota. It was the Chamber of Commerce and the GOP, the GOP sponsor of the bill that put an end to that Sunday blue law said, I think the majority of the state wants to make decisions for themselves. And the state tax commissioner said that we've always believed that more hours to shop will result in more shopping and therefore more revenue. A great thinker. <laughs> God, God bless him. So, more, 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 right? It's all, it's, it's, it, you know, in a way, it makes sense in a society in which more and more people um, identify as nuns, as people who don't identify with any religion. Why maintain the Sabbath? Why would God uh, ask us to take a day off? And in order to answer that question, I turn to the life of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He uh, was one of the great mid-century Jewish thinkers, a Hasidic thinker, but also one who had one foot in the world of secular philosophy. 
And his own Sabbath routine, which he wrote about in a, in a beautiful little book called The Sabbath, involved him every Friday. He would rush home you know, an hour or two earlier than usual. And uh, 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 the family would gather, light the candles. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Genesis, the Sabbath verses of the Genesis are read, and then the family gathers. And the rabbi writes, the weekdays are for the sake of the Sabbath. It is not an interlude, but the, but the climax of living. Of course, at the time he was writing, for American Jews, as much also for American Catholics, unfortunately, and, and others, um, the idea of American liberty had crowded out the Sabbath very much. It, it was already begin, that these blue laws were beginning to be chipped away at. The way that Heschel thought about this was um, as the overcoming of space by time. He thought of life in two realms. There is the realm of space in which we are acquisitive, we strive for career success. Yes, we seek pleasure. Um, geopolitically, we compete for territory. And that has its legitimate place in Heschel's scheme. But the trouble begins, or the danger begins, he writes, when in gaining power in the realm of space, we forfeit all aspiration in the realm of time. In that realm, the realm of time, the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord, end quote. So Heschel had been born uh, in Poland, the child of a, of a kind of Hasidic dynasty, Polish on, the, on, on one side, Lithuanian on the other, um, he, had, uh, he was a precocious boy of photographic memory. He had memorized the Torah by age seven. Um, he uh, 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 had read all of his father's books. His father was also a rabbi, obviously, by the time he was 12 and would boast that he could write better ones, which earned his father's rebuke from time to time. But he was also treated, as they said, as, as a rebbe, even as a child, so that when he walked into a room, adults would stand up and ask him for advice. Um, and they said that if he grew up to be a rabbi, he would put all the others out of business. But his father dies at, a, at, a, at, a, at an early age, and this does something in Heschel's life. Uh, he, he does become ordained as a rabbi at 16, but he doesn't take the typical path. He, he, his mother rejects on his behalf the offer of his uncle to marry um, his prettiest daughter, and he goes off instead um, to study philosophy in Germany and um, to articulate the, the biblical vision as he saw it in the language of German philosophy. And this was tiresome, it was difficult because this is the age of, of critical historical analysis of the Bible where to simplify, as you know, his, his scripture teachers wouldn't say, what does this particular passage say about morality that's true? Rather, they would say, for example, what do these claims about morality reflect about the civilization that gave birth to them? Um, and this frustrated him very much. He was very much in his own head. But one night in the early 1930s, as he's walking the magnificent streets, as he put it, of Berlin, the, has all the barks of a civilization that seeks conquest in space, he said, I noticed the sun had gone down, evening had arrived, and I asked, from what time may one recite the Shema, the evening prayer? Um, meaning that he had forgotten his task to, to remember Sinai. He had forgotten the realm of time. 
Um, but this experience, which was traumatic, serves as a kind of awakening for him, and he goes on to write his dissertation, uh, a project that, quote, reversed the secular humanistic projects of his time, as his biographer Edward Kaplan has put it, um, to treat God not as an artifact of man's earlier ages, but as a living creator God uh, who, for whom man is a project. And he also had, in this, the, the existence of this creator God had, a, had, a, had an ethical implication. It suggested there, that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong, whereas without the existence of such a God, as Heschel saw it, any depravity could be relativized and, and become permissible. Um, and so, sure enough, on, on, uh, uh, as you know, in 1933, in January, Adolf Hitler uh, becomes chancellor. It soon followed on April 1 by the famous anti-Jewish boycott. It happens on a Saturday. And Heschel writes, on Sabbath day at 10 o'clock, a filthy brown mass of people sat on shoulders, on doorsteps, <clears throat> on thresholds, Gutjantiv in Yiddish, happy holiday, purebred Germans. He's expelled to Poland, but miraculously manages to finish his and earn his doctorate even under the Hitlerite uh, administrators uh, at the University of Berlin. And he's in Poland, and he's rescued by Hebrew Union College because his work um, had, had brought him international attention by that point, and he'd been identified as one of the Jewish scholars to, to be rescued from the jaws of the Holocaust. But he couldn't save his Warsaw kin. His mother died of a heart attack when Nazi troops stormed uh, the ghetto. One sister died under Nazi bombing. Two others were burned, as he put it, in the fire of an altar to Satan that the Germans burned, uh, obviously the Holocaust. So he comes to America, and he notices various injustices that bother, bother him here as well. Rabbi Heschel is now remembered mostly for his civil rights era activism. He marched alongside Martin Luther King. He was the only Jew to eulogize uh, 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 King at his funeral. And he was also the Second Vatican Council's main Jewish interlocutor um, in, the, in the drafting of, of the Interfaith Declaration Nostra Aetate. But before he took on these civil rights issues in the United States, what bothered him more was the lack of that contemplative spirit, that lack of comfort with the realm of time that he witnessed among American Jewry more broadly, but also American society as a whole. But it hadn't always been thus. This country, this new land in which he found himself, had had Sabbath laws going back to the colonial era. Um, very, there's a famous anecdote in, in which uh, no less than President George Washington gets an earful from a local magistrate for writing from uh, Connecticut to New York in 1798. The Sabbath was so important as a kind of a theological, but also just social touchstone for the, for the, new Repu for the early uh, republic that Yale President Timothy Dwight, when he's trying to explain the dangers of what ha was happening across the ocean in France and the sort of depravity of the French Revolution and, his, and the fear that the young republic would also be thrown into that kind of turmoil, he wrote, to destroy us, our enemies must first destroy our Sabbath. And that tradition lasted, that tradition of Sabbatarianism lasted for much of the 19th century. The only area 
in which uh, so the Protestant evangelical movement wasn't able to um, stop uh, doing business on, on, on Sundays was in the delivery of mail. In every other area, they, they succeeded. It, it, but, and, but even the, the mail delivery, uh, eventually, uh, we stopped delivering mail on Sundays thanks to the sort of alliance of those Protestants, but also an, a, a, a new labor movement at the end of the 19th century. But then through the 20th century, uh, the Sabbath began to be chipped away at little by little uh, to the point where today, even USPS delivers mail on Sundays, but not for the public, but for Jeff Bezos. So that's the tragedy of the American Sabbath. Rabbi, Rabbi Heschel didn't see it, its development in full. He celebrated his final Sabbath on Friday, December 22nd, 1972. It was, and then he did not wake up on the Saturday. And his daughter, Susanna, has written, dying in one's sleep in traditional Judaism is called the kiss of God, and dying on the Sabbath as a, is called a gift merited by piety. Thank you very much. Thank you.